Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Days ago, we marked the birthday of the late Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. You can't reflect upon Dr. King's legacy or about the civil rights movement he led without talking about Andrew Young, who was King's lieutenant during the final momentous years of his life and was a witness to his death. Andy Young went on to make a mark in so many other ways as a congressman, a U.N. ambassador, a very successful mayor of Atlanta, and more. Service, he says, that was animated by the spirit of the fallen friend and leader he simply calls Martin. I sat down with Andy Young this week as he closes in on his own 90th birthday to recall all of that history and to talk about the events of this day. Here's that conversation. Andrew Young, it's a tremendous honor to be with you, uh, particularly in this week, uh, King Week here uh, in the U.S. And as I was getting ready to um, uh, for this podcast, I was thinking, well, you, you know, you've been a pastor, you've been a congressman, you've been a U.N. ambassador, you've been mayor of Atlanta. Like, what do I call you? What 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 is the title you prefer? <laughs> and is good enough. <laughs> okay. So tell me, I, there's so much to talk about, about your history and about what's going on today, but I do want to give people a sense of your own background and your own family's history. I know you grew up in New Orleans in the 30s and 40s, uh, and your, your, your father was a dentist, your mother was a teacher, but tell me about your family going back generations, and how is it that you guys ended up in New Orleans and... I can go back to um, 1860, maybe 1840 is where some of my relatives ended up in Louisiana and they came from Baltimore uh, to New Orleans on a boat. Don't know whether they were slaves or not or how they got there, what they did or how they ended up owning property. But um, Du Bois said there were 26 black millionaires in Louisiana before the Civil War. And a lot of the slaves that came made money and earned their freedom doing that ironwork that you see in the French Quarter. Hmm. Most of that was done by African slaves. In fact, all of that was built by African slaves who earned their freedom very quickly with their skills. I don't know when or whether. I don't think my grandfather was a slave. He was in Franklin, Louisiana, and um, ended up being a kind of a money manager. <laughs> there were, the story is that there was he handled the banking for a couple of Masonic lodges and a burial society, and he had about four million dollars, four to five million dollars in the bank in Franklin, Louisiana, 
you know, before wow. 1900. I know he was a postmaster during Reconstruction, and his house was right beside the railroad track, and he was responsible for taking the mail off the railroad track, off the railroads, <laughs> and seeing that it got to the post office and got distributed. And he was a businessman. And your dad became a dentist. How, yeah. did, how did that evolve? Well, it, it, it evolved a break with his family because his father, his, his father wanted him to take over the businesses, but he wanted to be a dentist and, and play. He was a baseball player. So let me ask you something. You, uh, so you grew up in a what's solidly middle-class family. I grew up in a very interesting neighborhood and it was a, New Orleans is strangely integrated housing. I mean, it doesn't have a Negro section. Well, it does, but at that time, we lived in a neighborhood where there were maybe a half a dozen dozen black families, mostly uh, teachers and just working class people. Mm -hmm. I lived in the middle of a block. On one corner was an Irish grocery store, or the next corner was an Italian bar. The headquarters of the Nazi party was 50 yards from my house on the third floor. Huh. And so I can remember as early as four years old, my father trying to explain to me why they were Highland Hitler. There was no air conditioning, so the windows were open. And all of these folk were in there in black shirts, you know, and Highland Hitler and singing Deutschland over and And being a dentist, most of my father's, um, uh, most of the dental supply people happened to be Jewish. In fact, I think on my mother's side, my grandfather was Jewish. <laughs> His name was Zernowski. Huh. <laughs> and he ran a Polish shipping line between New Orleans and Europe. And um, my grandmother, that was her maiden name. Really? They were not poor people. She was not very educated, but she was brilliant. Had a tremendous memory, mostly of Bible. And that's how I grew up. Yeah. So I, what I wanted to ask you is when you became active in the in the civil rights movement, did the fact that you had grown up under these circumstances, did that create class divisions between you and some of the activists uh, in the movement? Well, no, because truthfully, Martin King was more middle class than me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, I mean, he was Martin. Actually, Martin might have been upper class. Because his grandfather was his grandfather was the treasurer of the National Baptist Convention, which in the forties had six million black members across this country, and so um, we were all fairly privileged. When you went off to Howard University, it wasn't with uh, the mindset that you were going to become, uh, you were going to join the clergy. It wasn't with the mindset that you were going to be a civil rights uh, leader. You went there to follow with the idea that you were going to follow in your father's footsteps? That's what my father sent me there for. <laughs> my father sent me there to be a dentist. And uh -huh. I majored in biology, but I knew I was not going to be a dentist. But I was, well, I went there when I was, well, I went to college at 15. And so I, I didn't have the strength to rebel uh -huh. until after I graduated. What is it that caused you to think differently? What is it that caused, uh, changed your your trajectory? Well, I always knew I was a free spirit and a dental office didn't seem like where I wanted to spend my life. I worked in my father's dental office. I worked with uh, his dental suppliers. Uh, I knew how to do bridge work 
and things. I mean, I, I, I knew the business. Mm-hmm. And, um, but th- I, that was never what I wanted to do. But I didn't know what I wanted to do. I didn't know who I was. And again, I... Most people don't at 15. Yeah. And I didn't, I wasn't worried about it. I had a ball in college. <laughs> Too much, I read somewhere. You, you Probably. were not, not a scholastic champion there, huh? Well, I did. I passed all the courses and I, I did what I had to do to get a degree. I was on the track team and the swimming team and, uh, you know, had a life in, a fr- in my fraternity. I was, I joined a fraternity when I was 18, but it was a fraternity that, that valued scholarship, manly deeds, scholarship, and love for all mankind. Names of our dear fraternity. It was Dave Dinkins who came mayor of New York. He had come back from the Marines and was in his early 20s. He was about five years older than me. And he sort of took me under his wing. Uh, how did you make the decision? How did you turn to, to divinity school and to ministry? Well, it was one of these accidents. When I left Howard University, everything was segregated. So you couldn't find a place to stay. And we stopped at a, at a, a school in North Carolina in Kings Mountain. And um, my parents, it was a religious school, and my parents went to the church meetings. I didn't want to go. I went out running (laughs) and um, decided to run to the top of this mountain. And it was, I was in very good shape. But when you're running toward a mountain, you're running downhill, and you go, you end up going too fast. And then I decided I was going to run to the top of the mountain when I was already exhausted. And I made it, but I kind of passed out. When I got myself together and opened my eyes, the world just looked different. And it was, it was the closest thing I've had to a religious experience, probably the only thing I've had, maybe. But it just suddenly hit me. Everything here has a purpose. The corn has a purpose. The trees have a purpose. The clouds have a purpose. And I knew just enough biology and botany to understand a little of that. And if everything I can see has a purpose, Whoever made everything else could not have made me as the only thing around with no purpose. And so I came down the mountain, probably a free man. Hmm. That's an amazing story. That um, I didn't know what life would well for me, but here I was 19 years old with a college degree and knowing not how much I knew, but knowing how much I didn't know <laughs> and how much more I wanted to know. What made you uh, decide that? Uh, divinity school was a way to seek that knowledge. When I got home, my church had a new preacher who happened to be a graduate of Yale Divinity School. And he was, uh, he was invited to do Bible study over in the Panhandle of Texas. And he was a northerner. And he asked me what I ride with him. He said, because he didn't know how to get along in the South. And he was very uneasy. And he would feel better if I would drive with him to uh, Texas, to this conference. Well, it was supposedly in West Texas here. I assumed it was near San Antonio. My college roommate was from San Antonio. And so I figured I'd take him to the church conference and drop him off and then go spend the time with my roommate in San Antonio. A couple of things happened. One, we didn't see anybody black from the time we left Houston. Uh, going up north toward the Panhandle. And he was saying, you're not going to take me here and leave me. up." (laughs) So I agreed to stay. But when we got to this conference, 
It was mostly white college, it was all white college students. We were the only black people there. This was 1951. And then most of the white students started telling me, if my parents knew I was here with you, they would probably disown me and put me out. I said, well, why did you come? They said, because, and all of them had the same answer, because I think this is what Jesus would have me do. I'd never met people like that before. But it was impressive that all of these Southern white kids from uh, upper middle class families, in fact, one girl's father was the sheriff of her county. They were all upper class white kids, but they were all very guilty about their racial situation. And they were all trying to get me to help them (laughs) figure out, you know, how to, well, for one thing, well, I don't know. I, I grew up in a neighborhood I grew up in with Irish grocery store, the Italian bar, Nazi party was, again, all of my friends as a childhood, as a child in the neighborhood were white. Uh, when I went to public school, I had to go to an all black public school. So I was I, I could handle myself in different in different environments. That answer that they gave you, because that's what Jesus would do, that inspired you to go to divinity school? Well, no. But they had a program and they were asking these white kids were volunteers for this program to try to get more young people interested in religion. And it was run by the National Council of Churches and they wanted to make it integrated. And I was the only black person there. (laughs) So they ended up asking me what I volunteer and I had nothing else to do. So I, I volunteered and they sent me to Connecticut. And in Hartford, Connecticut, when I got there, I went to the Council of Churches and they were expecting me, but they didn't have a place for me to stay. So they called Hartford Theological Seminary and asked if I could stay in, if they had an extra room or a guest room I could stay in. They said yes. And I walked on the campus and I'd never been on a seminary campus before. I didn't know what it was like, but um, I was lucky in that the guys that were coming back to go to seminary were mostly people who had been in the war, Second World War. And some guy said, first guy I met came to me and said, what's a fine looking young fellow like you doing here? Are you running from some girl or are you trying to stay out of the army? <laughs> you know? And I said, golly, these are my kind of people. <laughs> and so you enrolled. Well, I walked into the dean's office and asked him, I said, you know, I'm, I'm working with a church organization and I've been to Sunday school, I've read the Bible, but I really don't know anything. Can I sit in on a couple of classes? Most of my work is after three o'clock. And he said, the dean said, well, if you sit in on three classes, I can give you a scholarship. Hmm. And he said that we have a scholarship here. It's the Rockefeller Brothers Fund for the Negro Ministry. And he said, nobody ever applied for it. And um, we'd be glad to give it to you if you'd like to enroll. And that's how I got into seminary. And how did that experience change you? I mean, did it deepen your your faith? Well, it deepened everything. I mean, by that time, see, my life is working out just like it was planned, it seems. Mm-hmm. It was almost like, and, and my New Testament and my Old Testament professors were both Quakers. So I started going to the Quaker meeting, uh, and I started reading a lot of the, the um, religious documents that were all geared toward nonviolence, and they, they were devout pacifists. And so that's, that's where I got indoctrinated by the nonviolence. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's where I started reading it and trying to take it seriously. But you left and you, pa- you pastored a couple of churches in Georgia. Well, I was still, well, I'd been on the track team 
and still thinking I might have a chance at the Olympics. And so I planned to go to New York and train with the Pioneer Track Club and the conference superintendent for the United Church of Christ called and said, look, I have this little church down in Alabama and we haven't had it, been able to send them a minister for the last three years. And it'll probably close if I can't send them somebody. And I said, well, I'm already set to go to New York <laughs> and I got a job. And, I, and he said, yeah, but everybody wants to go to New York and somebody will go if you don't go. And everybody wants to go to the Olympics, whether you go or not, they're going to have an Olympics. Said, but if you don't go down to this little church in Alabama, it will probably close down. Well, there again, that's one of those things that, again, the second or third thing that nobody else wants to do. So that was the way I had defined my destiny. There's something I can do on this earth that nobody else can do. So I ended up having to say, what the hell? <laughs> uh, I'll go. And I go down there and realize that this is the same kind of school that my parents went to in Louisiana. The first place where they invited me to dinner, their youngest daughter had a Bible and a senior life-saving certificate and a basketball letter on the wall. <laughs> and I hadn't met her, didn't know anything about her except a Bible, a basketball letter, and a senior life-saving certificate. And I decided, well, maybe God sent me here to marry this woman, whatever the hell it is. <laughs> did you? I did. <laughs> we were married for 40 years before she died of cancer. We ended up marrying and going to Thomasville, Georgia, as my little country church. The first thing that uh, one of the first persons I met asked me would I be willing to run a voter registration drive. And I said, sure. And he said, but you know we're voting Republican. <laughs> I said, I'm a Democrat. He said, well, you can be a Democrat in Connecticut. But in, in Georgia, if Stevenson wins, Richard Russell and Senator from Mississippi, Eastland, get to nominate the judges. There are no white Republicans in the South. And so if Eisenhower wins, we get to suggest the people who are going to be judges. And it was on that basis that uh, I campaigned for Eisenhower and ran a voter registration drive in 1956. In rural Georgia, yeah. what did that entail? Because that must not have been welcomed <laughs> by the white community down there. It was not a problem for me, except that, uh, except that we did have a Klan rally scheduled the night before I was supposed to start my voter registration drive. But again, I was not uncomfortable with white people. But certainly not even white people in sheets? No. They, in fact, that was one of the revelations from my wife. That I, I wanted her. I, you know, I was, uh, I was right after the Second World War, and Reinhold Niebuhr talked about uh, negotiation from a position of strength. So I said to Gene, you uh, go talk to these people, but you sit in the window with the rifle and pointed at the, whoever it is comes to this house. And, and she said, I can't point a gun at a human being. I said, baby, that's the Ku Klux Klan. She said, yeah, but you're supposed to be a preacher. And I said, well, what's that got to do with it? She said, well, you have to remember, if you ever forget that under that sheet is the heart of a child of God, you got no business preaching. I said, woman, 
me some slack. <laughs> you want me to go? <laughs> and she said, no, you have to stop and think this through. And we, we kind of finally decided we'd go directly to the mayor. And I learned my, one of my most important lessons. The mayor was not, he ran the hardware store, but he picked up the phone and he called Flowers Bakery and Sunnyland Packing Company, the two largest employers. And um, they told him that he had to see the sheriff and make sure that we had the right to have our voter registration drive, but that the Klan had a right to have a meeting on the courthouse steps, but confine them to the courthouse territory. Don't let them march in the black community. Well, that was a different kind of South than Mississippi later on. Yeah, sure. In fact, that was the South is quite different in every every state and every county. And the main thing is that uh, all of these people got along pretty well, black and white. I was asked by the white community if I would uh, uh, lead the uh, March of Dimes drive in the Negro community. <laughs> and I had to go to Warm Springs to be oriented. That was still when the uh, people in with smallpox I mean, uh, polio yes. was still in iron lungs, but I was there three or four years. My wife was teaching school and we did anything. I mean, I was, I was, I enjoyed it. In fact, when we went to New York, we, I got a job in New York and my wife didn't want to go. <laughs> I mean, she didn't want to leave the South. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. Getting back to Dr. King, I know you met him in the 50s. You were at some uh, uh, fraternity event. It was Talladega College, and it was a religious emphasis week. And I said that they invited him because, but then they invited me as a backup. He would, by that time, he'd been on cover Time magazine and everything. Yeah, there was, it was the year after, I think, the Montgomery bus boycott yeah. that made him a national figure yeah but when we met there we both showed up and he realized that his wife had gone to the, and my wife had gone to high school together so he invited us to stop by the house on our way back to thomasville in montgomery in montgomery but mm -hmm. again we never talked politics we never talked civil rights he had a new baby it was just about not quite a year old, and so did I. And we we were doting fathers, you know, with our, our baby girls. Your relationship became different. You you after New York, you came back to Atlanta. We, you know, it was it was we had just bought a house in Queens, um, in an integrated community, a beautiful house. Blessing of that was that we were able to go to. She was Dean was able to go to Queens College and get a master's degree for $16 a semester. <laughs> and so we, we um, it was worthwhile. I was working with the National Council of Churches and was traveling all over the country, meeting with white students, preparing them for integration. We saw Nashville sit-in story, and it was John Lewis and the students in Nashville. And um, when the first intermission came, Gene said, it's time for us to go back home. 
I said, we are home. We just bought this house. She said, no. Well, I said, well, what are we going to do? She said, sell it. I said, what about a job? <laughs> hmm. I said, what am I going to do? She said, I don't know. It'll work out. And so wow. she had, she got her master's. She had our second baby. And um, we went back south. It was very complicated, but I finally ended up working it out through my denomination that I would be on their staff. On their staff at the SCLC? Or? No, the staff of the National, I mean, the United Church of Christ. Oh, I see. And um, they received a grant from the Marshall Field Foundation to do adult literacy in teaching people to read and write to register to vote. But I was on the staff of my church uh, being paid by the Marshall Field Foundation. But I was across the hall from Martin Luther King in, on Auburn Avenue, and his secretary asked me, would I uh, mind volunteering a little help helping him answer his mail? And I said, no, be glad to. My wife, we didn't have a place to stay, so I was in the YMCA. She went back to her family in Alabama. And so for a couple of months, till I found a house, I had just great egg crates full of mail <laughs> that was tied up. And I'd stay up at night in the YMCA answering letters to Martin Luther King. And um, his secretary would type them up. And he started reading what I was writing. And he liked it. He started asking me what I research. If he was going to speak somewhere that he was not comfortable, he'd ask me to look it up and make some suggestions about what he might talk about. So I was sort of a, not a speech writer because you couldn't write speeches for him. But I was a researcher and a letter answerer. And let me ask you, what were your impressions of him in those early days when you started working with him? You say you can't be a speech writer. Obviously, he was one of the great orators of all time. But as a person, what, what were your impressions of him? He was just a really a regular guy, very humble and quiet, you know, no big ego. Uh, I mean, he, he, he was just, just a good guy. You ended up uh, as his, uh, essentially his right-hand person, his, his executive assistant. But obviously, throughout that period in the early 60s and up to his, his death, um, you know, the, the, ten the tension and tenor uh, of, of the civil rights movement uh, and the, the confrontations became uh, more and more menacing. You had Medgar Edvers being killed in Mississippi. Uh, you had the three uh, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner in 64 killed in, in Mississippi. You had the church bombing in Selma, which was uh, in that period. No, uh, yeah. But again, all of those were things that I'd grown up with that. Uh, again, from kindergarten, I was taught not to be afraid of death. One of the things I, I was talking with one of our staff about, uh, you know, my grandmother used to talk about dying all the time. And Martin said that death is the ultimate democracy. Everybody's got to die. <laughs> mm -hmm. He said, you don't have anything to say about where you die, or how you die. Your only choice is what is it you're willing to give your life for. But no matter, you're going to die. Was it in your own mind and in his, this is worth dying for? Yeah. And, and like he'd say, if you haven't found anything you're willing to die for, you're really not fit to live. 
I wish I could get that message from some of my Republican friends in the Senate. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, I was going to ask you about that right now. Even as we speak, there is a debate going on in the Senate on voting rights to enshrine uh, further protections to kind of push back against some of the things that are going on in the states and to revitalize the Voting Rights Act that you worked so hard to pass in the first instance that you worked so hard to renew and strengthen uh, when you were a member of Congress. What's your sense of what's going on in Washington now? Well, right now, I think we're stuck. We're stuck because Republicans won't be Republican. They're all scared of their former president. And they have betrayed their consciences. They've betrayed their faith. They've betrayed their heritage. The Republican, the people that we named uh, that were appointed to the federal courts by Eisenhower were all Southern Republicans. But they were some of the smartest, some of the most decent, uh, some of the wisest and best educated men uh, I know. And, and they saved this nation. Now, they caught hell. They were not accepted by the South. Uh, but they didn't have to go up to vote. Uh, they didn't have to sell their souls to be a judge. They were free. It seems as though there are some people who feel as though they, uh, well, I don't know. You know, it struck, it struck me, uh, Andy, that I was, uh, when I was uh, reading about your efforts in 1975 to, to renew and strengthen the Voting Rights Act, uh, you got 370 votes in the House. Uh, for that, you clearly had Republicans and Democrats supporting yeah. that, and it, and the same was true in the Senate. Will we ever go back there? You know, I went to Congress the same time Joe Biden went to the Senate, uh, and so I've known him since 1973. And he is a solid, determined, disciplined, dedicated, almost saintly human being, and. He's been asked to run the country at a time when the entire Republican Party is uh, taking a sabbatical on the job. I don't know how they expect to keep the nation going. And, and I think the very fact that we are doing so well without them is hope for the future. Now, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah, but isn't this about power? Well, it's not. It's about preserving ignorance. And ignorance doesn't need to be preserved. You know, you you hear uh, uh, even now, you know, President Biden's having his his problems and you hear people say, well, he could be another Jimmy Carter. Does that hurt you when you hear that? No, it hurts me for the country. Well, you you had great reverence for him. Oh, yeah. And still do. Tell me why. Because he is he is genuine. He's humble, brilliant. He's the most disciplined human being I've ever met. And he wants to be, when he read the Bible first, said, be therefore perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, is perfect. He tried to make it. <laughs> and I mean, little things like he still weighs the same thing as he weighed when he left the Naval Academy. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, he has kept his weight at 165. We were on the verge of solving a lot of the international problems. They didn't reverse what we've done and that we've done in Africa, but they didn't keep it going. But what he did in the in the Middle East, there has not been a shot fired between Egypt and Israel 
since the Camp David Accord. Right. And there's just so much that could have happened that would have been the fulfillment of the American dream for American citizens of all colors. You know, I, I still don't give up on these dreams. Uh, mm-hmm. They're going to happen, and it, it, it may not be, as we, we, we say in the church, God may not come when you want him, but he's always on time. Let me ask you about the changes in the law in Georgia after the last election. What impact do you think those are going to have if they stand? The voters' restrictions? Well, ultimately, I think the South, and particularly Georgia, is going to be led by brain power. And that's these, I mean, it's, it's moving in. Uh, there are mm-hmm. 4,000 jobs down, uh, oh, 15 miles from here uh, that Google just brought in. A Korean company moved into just outside of North Georgia, and they're paying $18 an hour for high-tech jobs. And do you think that this, these changes can overcome the barriers that are being set up right now by these voter laws? They might not in this election. We might lose an election, not two, because the business community is too dependent on the thinking that has come out of the politics and the universities of the city of Atlanta. Mm -hmm. Georgia football is number one. (laughs) Yeah. It it wouldn't get to be number one if it wasn't integrated. And no would Alabama, no would, would Jackson, no would Mississippi. The, the South is really on the verge of recovery. Isn't that kind of why there is this reactionary move to change voting laws and roll the clock back? Well, it is. But we, you've never, I mean, the earth is spinning. <laughs> and, and you can't roll it. You can't stop it. And you can't get off, say. But. If you slow down your own metabolism, every cell in your body is in motion. That's the last only thing I learned from biology. (laughs) (laughs) So change is going to keep coming. Inevitable. Mm -hmm. And when you're trying to slow it down, you're only hurting yourself. You make yourself sick. And this is the sickest politics I have experienced. And, you know, I got a birthday. I know, 90 years old. I'll be 90. Yeah. This is the dumbest I've ever seen politics in America. I mean, it's stupid. And when I get in my preacher mode, I wonder how these folks are going to face their maker. (laughs) Yeah, but I I gave you a seat in the Senate to vote my will. Uh, And you did not feed the hungry. You did not clothe the naked. You didn't heal the sick. You shut down uh, Medicare and you refused to expand the hospital system, and you didn't serve my people. You know, the older you get, the more you start thinking about the fact that this life has an end. And as Dr. King used to say, okay, how smart you are, how rich you are, you're going to die. <laughs> what color you are, you know, you got to face the judgment. I hate to think of what happens to the Senate because I believe that this nation is the hope of the earth. If this nation doesn't work, the world will work. If our constitution isn't upheld, we as a planet don't survive. It gets me back to being a preacher, and I don't think preaching will, will help. I think something has to bring this nation to its senses. The storms that are raging are different than they were when I was a boy. 
See, and I was in the middle of the storms in New Orleans till I was 15, 16. But they're getting that bad. They're coming up to New York now and Washington. Uh, they didn't used to do that. We see the forests of the, the Northwest destroyed by global warming. They don't want to think that that exists. And, and there are things that we can do. It's really not too late. But the longer we wait, the greater the suffering is going to be. So this goes to your dumb politics thing. Yeah. Just one last thing on this, and then I, I have to ask you about Memphis in 1968. As I said, as we speak, the Senate is debating the John Lewis Civil Rights Act, the additional voting rights legislation. It will be defeated because of the filibuster. And you have a couple of Democrats, maybe more, who won't change the filibuster. Are you discouraged by that? No. I was with Martin when he went to see Lyndon Johnson uh, in 1964. And he was, Lyndon Johnson was the most discouraged I'd ever seen him. We came in to see him right after McGeorge Bundy and all of the hawks from Vietnam left, and they'd been beaten up on him. It was a different Lyndon Johnson. He was not the voluble, boisterous, take charge. He was really depressed. And everything we asked him, he agreed with, and he said, but I'm sorry, I just don't have the power. That was the one word he said, and and he probably said it 10 times in a half hour, 45 minute conversation. When we left, I asked Dr. King, well, what are we going to do? I said, you know, he's right. He doesn't have the power. You need to take a sabbatical for six months and strengthen yourself and let's go to work after the next election. He said, no, we got to get the power for the president. We got to get the president some power. And I, I, I laughed. I said, that's, I mean, you got a Nobel Prize, but it doesn't bring you power in the Senate. <laughs> but he kept saying, no, we got to get the president some power. We get back to Atlanta. Two days later, Amelia Boynton shows up from Selma. And we had never talked about Selma. We knew Selma. But when she came, we agreed to go to Selma on the 2nd of January. By the 26th of March, I think it was, Lyndon Johnson was standing up before a joint session of Congress saying, we shall overcome, and introducing the Voting Rights Act. It was spiritual power. It was a religious something that Martin was talking about. And I'm one of, that still believes that God is still on the throne. And that, uh, as he said, truth crushed earth will rise again. And if, if he did anything dastardly, our former president crushed the concept of truth. That alone will send him to hell, if there is a hell. But it's making his life hell now. I just refuse to lose faith in the United States of America with all of his problems, with all of his troubles, all of his weaknesses. They're in all of us. And yet, truth crushed to earth will rise again. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. This is a good place to talk about the end of Dr. King's life. Talk to me about Memphis. And because it's been reported often that you and others were not eager for 
Dr. King to go to Memphis. None of us wanted him to go to Memphis. Why? Because um, it was a distraction from the Poor People's Campaign. We were trying to get the movement to Washington, and we saw Memphis as a detour. There was a sanitation. We should point out there was a sanitation sanitation worker strike. Worker strike. Yeah. And Martin had a weak spot for what he called the least of these God's children. And he had promised the sanitation workers. And, um, you know, no, no city can get along without sanitation workers. They're some of the most important people in our lives. Right. Because they keep the cities clean. We call them essential workers sometimes, but we don't treat them like that. Yeah. And once he went, he decided that he needed to go back and march with them. Well, I think by that time he realized that his days were numbered. Why? Why did he realize that? I don't know. I don't know what was happening to him, but. I mean, he gave this, uh, and you were probably there when he gave it, uh, yeah. this prophetic speech the night before he was killed. And he said famously, we've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. What, what prompted him to say that? And did you think about it when he said it? Well, I had been thinking about it before he went. He always talked about death and he mm -hmm. talked about there being, he says, I know there's a bullet somewhere with my name on but he would always turn it into humor. He'd say, but um, you guys are always trying to get your picture in the paper and you probably jump in front of me and take the bullet for me. Uh, <laughs> and then he would start preaching your funeral and say all the embarrassing things he could say. He was, he was quite a comedian, but he mm -hmm. would turn the most tragic, poignant moments into comedy. And he, his preaching for your funeral amongst us was, more along the order of Richard Pryor. <laughs> uh -huh. I mean, he would talk about all the embarrassing things he could think of that you might be guilty of or accused of. And so he, he made us laugh at death as he was laughing at his death. Uh, but that didn't take away from him. And as long as I knew him, I mean, when we started going to Birmingham in 1963, that was the first thing everybody said. Now, somebody's not going to come out of there. Birmingham ain't called Bombingham for nothing. So there had been 60 unsolved bombings the year before. So he said, you better get your life in order. And he, he'd decide, you know, who, who was going to die. And he'd start preaching your funeral. And mm -hmm. that was the may, way he made us face up to death and laugh at it. You'd said that he said, you guys always like to get your pictures in the paper. There is one of the most famous photos of all time is this tragic photo of you, uh, I think Reverend Jackson, I'm not sure who else was there, pointing off of the balcony, standing over Dr. King. Yeah. yeah. When you ran upstairs, you heard this shot, you ran upstairs, yeah. you saw your friend, I mean, more than a friend, the person to whom you dedicated yourself for years and your ally in this fight. And that hadn't changed. What went through your head? How did you process that? No, first thing I said was, damn, you can't go to heaven and leave us in hell, mm -hmm. you know? And then I realized that it was too late, that the bullet was surgically accurate. It severed his spinal cord. So he probably didn't even hear it or feel it. And um, it, it was like um, 
the prophet in the Old Testament that went to heaven on a flaming chariot. Mm-hmm. It was almost like he made a transition immediately. And I realized that uh, if there was anybody that deserved a reward for a life well lived, he did. But I also, I mean, I'm a, I'm a New Testament Christian. And I don't believe in death. And I don't believe that he went anywhere. It's been almost 60 years since his assassination. And there's not a day that his spirit is not active in the lives of all of us. And we still, here we are, (laughs) devoting a whole hour to things that he said and did. 50, 60 years ago, 70 years ago. That's the transition that Deepak Chopra talks about. We think we're physical creatures that have an occasional spiritual experience. I think I'm coming to the conclusion that we really are spiritual creatures and that this is an occasional physical experience. And that um, ultimately, we've got the answer to the spirituality that makes us human. And that's not Democrat or Republican. It's not black or white, American or Hindu or Jewish. It's, we're all God's children. And um, we're all going to have to answer uh, somewhere, sometime for the life that we live on this earth. I'm comfortable with what I think we took the... Uh, preaching and teaching of Martin Luther King, and we translated it into politics here in Atlanta. And I think we've educated people, we've fed the hungry, we've clothed the nation, and we we really need to be planning to do that for the rest of the planet. It's probably a great place to end. Thank you for all you've done. Well, for giving us uh, a president. I mean, I got a little message from President Carter a couple of days ago. And it showed a picture of him kissing Rosalind after Christmas. And so he's still the man that we worked with. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, your administration made significant progress, but um, they're still also very young. And politics is not just those who were elected. Uh, it's those who were anointed. And I think you were part of an administration that had an anointing for the liberation of America from this racism. Well, that means so much to me, but I have to say, I can't not respond by saying thank you for giving us that president, because he would be the first to say that he stood on your shoulders. He stood on Dr. King's shoulders. He was inspired to be about something larger than himself by the history of the civil rights movement and the progress that you made and the barriers that you knocked down were ones that he was able to uh, run through. So at the risk of sounding like a mutual admiration society, I have to say right back at you. And uh, thank you so much, Andrew Young. God bless you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. 
The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.